Well, I invite you to take your Bibles and open, if you would, to the book of Psalms, and specifically to Psalm 56. This week, I heard someone say, I just don't know that I can take it anymore. When I was a kid, I rarely got into fights with my brothers, not because I was such a good kid, but because they were five years and eight years older than me. And uh, there just really wasn't much point. Uh, <laughs> at, at any least little whim of theirs, they could pin me down and uh, either one of them could and tickle me or otherwise torture me, whatever they had in mind. And so I just kind of steered clear of them for the most part. But when they did have me pinned down, there was usually something like this. Have you had enough? Say uncle. I wonder who ever started that anyway. Why uncle? Not aunt or grandma or, uh, you know, or help? <laughs> Mom was usually what I said. Except she was at work. Um, <laughs> but whenever you said whatever it was they said to say, they stopped. That really is where this psalm opens this morning. Psalm 56 says, be gracious to me. That really is, is David is writing and this is a desperate prayer, a desperate plea. He's in bad shape and when he says, be gracious, he's saying, have mercy! Make it stop! Please. God, have mercy. Some of you have been in a place like that before where you just say, I'm done. Uncle, God, make it stop. Maybe you prayed that very prayer this week. I do know that a substantial number of you in our church family are really in crisis times right now. Maybe it's crisis because of physical health issues. Maybe it's a crisis of the loss of a loved one. Maybe it's the crisis of financial problems or the crisis of job issues or crisis with marital problems or crisis of a wayward child. But I know many of you going through critical times right now. And it wouldn't surprise me if a number of you have said what I heard that brother say this week. I just don't think I can take this anymore. What do you do when that's where you are? This psalm is here for our benefit. Just for those times when we we hit such a place in life where the tendency is to panic or to worry or to fear or to fret or to descend into depression or despair. And I say when because eventually, sooner or later, most every one of us will get there. Before, however, we see the answers that I think this psalm will show us, It'll help us to see what has David so upset. 
we've, we've, what is it that is making him feel this way? Now, our situation won't be just like his. But it will help us to see where he is. It, we, we notice first the inscription before the psalm. Before the psalm starts, you'll notice there at Psalm 56, psalm starts in verse 1. But ahead of that, there's an inscription. To the choir master. tells us right off this was written for the choir. It's written to the choir director. Here's the song for the choir. Here's a special music to be sung. And then it's followed by these words, according to the dove on far off terebinths. Now the scholars and the translators uh, have a difficult time trying to figure out exactly how these words are to be translated and what they mean. But it seems best to understand, I'm not a scholar nor the son of one nor whatever, but it seems to me best to understand this as it's simply giving the tune for the song. The tune is, according to the, the tune is, the dove on the far off terebinths. I searched iTunes last night trying to find it so I could play you a few bars so you could get a little taste of what it sounded like. Couldn't find it. If one of you can find it, let me know. If not, there's, here's a great opportunity to write a tune. You got a title and it's kind of catchy. <laughs> then it says, it's a mictum. That's another word that the scholars and translators have trouble with, really knowing exactly what it is. And here it seems best to, most of the assumptions are that it's describing the type or the style of the song. So the tune is the, the dove on the far off terebinths, but it's played with a country western swing. You know? Or more likely a dirge. <laughs> Because David is really down here. Like the old country western song, if it weren't for bad luck, I'd have no luck at all. It's kind of that uh, song here. By the way, there's only six psalms that are in the inscriptions mentioned as a mictum. This is the first of five. The next four are all mictums. And then Psalm 16 is the last one that rounds out. That's all of them. So if you want to read all the mictums today, it's pretty easy to do. Even though we don't know what one is. But this is one. So there we go. Well, what is clear is what comes next. It's a mictum of David. So we know who wrote it. It's David who wrote it. And then it gives us the occasion for the writing. It says, a mictum of David when the Philistines seized him at Gath. And I can read it in your faces, all of you going, oh, that's it. That helps a lot. But for the few of you who need to be refreshed, I'll just go back and tell you the backstory. David is the composer, the author. David is the one who later becomes King David, but he's not King David now. You may recall that King David was anointed as king actually back when he was a boy, but a long time before he became king. He was a boy, a young man, tending sheep for his dad, Jesse. He's hanging out in the fields taking care of sheep. The prophet Samuel comes to Jesse says, I'm gonna, I want you to get all your boys together. I'm going to anoint one king. He brings all his sons together. goes through all the sons. None of them are the right one. Samuel says to Jesse, you got another son? Oh yeah, there's David. He's out in the field taking care of sheep. Come on! Brings David in and Samuel says, this is the one. Anoints him king. And immediately, they take David and put him back in the field taking care of the sheep. 
<laughs> they don't take him to the palace because King Saul is still king. And David takes care of sheep. Apparently that goes on for some time, maybe a year or two, and then eventually one day he gets an invitation and he's given a part-time gig as palace guitar player for the king while he still takes care of sheep. I say a part-time gig because then as today, it's still hard to make a living as a musician. just thought I'd bring that up. If any of you have ideas, I'm going to make a living as a musician. It's not easy to do. So he's in the palace sometimes and out taking care of the sheep other times. You probably know the story. Sometime later, Dad says, got you, i got an errand for you to run. Sends him off to the battlefield where his brothers are engaged with... On the, they're on the front lines of the, the war with the Philistines. David arrives there only to find that there's no war going on. All there is is the, is the Israelite soldiers hiding out in the rocks and in the low places while every day this massive giant named Goliath comes out and taunts the people of Israel and makes fun and slanders God, challenging any comers to a duel, no one will do it. David says, what, nobody's going to fight this guy? I'll go. And you know the story. Young David goes out there with one rock from his sling, takes out Goliath. David immediately is enlisted into the military. He becomes a commander in the forces, becomes a Tremendously successful, more successful than any of the other military leaders. A loyal soldier to the king. He becomes a celebrity. He becomes the king's son-in-law. And King Saul ends up becoming extremely jealous of David. Threatened by him, though David is nothing but loyal, Saul ultimately tries to kill David on three different occasions and now David realizes he needs to flee for his life and he runs. He realizes there is no safe place for him anymore. Saul and his men are on the hunt for him and he thinks maybe it will be safe if he leaves Israel. And so David David crosses over the border into Philistine territory which probably seemed like a good idea at the time. But, like so many things that seemed like a good idea at the time, it wasn't. David ends up in the region of Gath, and as he's there, he is immediately recognized by the people there. Isn't this David, the one of whom is anointed to be the next king of Israel, our bitter enemy, the one of whom the people say that he's killed his tens of thousands, and we put in there Philistines, and they seize him. To make matters worse, Gath is the hometown of Goliath. And if that's not bad enough, David shows up in Gath, the hometown of Goliath, carrying Goliath's sword. The one weapon he was able to get before he left town. He's in a pickle. That's where this psalm opens up. Actually, that's where this entire song takes place. He writes it while he's still in captivity. The 
song, the inscription says, while, when the Philistines seized him. David is in a desperate situation. So he begins with a desperate prayer. God, make it stop. Give mercy. I went from bad into worse. The situation seems hopeless. It's a desperate situation. Look at verses 1 and 2. He just says how bad it is. Be gracious to me, O God, for man tramples on me all day long an attacker oppresses me. My enemies trample on me all day long for many attack me proudly. His situation is he is overwhelmed. He says he feels trampled upon, insignificant, worthless. He feels powerless. They attack and oppress him. I've noticed, by the way, when we we use the word oppress not to describe how a fly affects us. A fly is buzzing around. We don't say a fly oppresses me. It bothers me. You know, if we've got a little problem, it doesn't oppress us. A little problem bothers us. When something oppresses us, it's because it's huge. That's the point. This is a huge thing. He is powerless and they are powerful. He is outnumbered. He says they are many and He is one. (laughs) He's overwhelmed. The problem, He's not just overwhelmed by His problems, but they are relentless. All day long, He says, verse 1, verse 2, verse 5. Three times at least, He says, all day long, day after day, hour after hour, there is no relief. He's wiped out. He's exhausted. Most of us can't identify with David's problem in the fact that he's being hunted by the king of the land. I don't think any of you have been hunted by the king of the land. I don't think that we have been on the run for our life alone with only what we have on our backs being chased down by an army, but that's where David is. I don't think any of us have been captive captive by the enemy. Maybe you have. I don't think any of us, most of us at least, haven't been taken captive by enemy soldiers. We have a hard time identifying with that, but most of us can identify with a situation where we're overwhelmed and where it just seems like there is no end. It's relentless. But the situation gets worse. Skip a couple of verses. Go down to verse 5. All day long they injure my cause. All their thoughts are against me for evil. They stir up strife. He is alone and He feels alone. Consumed with ruining David, there is a relentless conspiracy that has poisoned public opinion with slander and has worked to undermine any support that he has. They have sought to injure his cause. They have stirred up strife, stirred up trouble against him. Tried to cut off all his support. and all his. He's alone. In verse 6 it says, They lurk, they watch my steps as they have waited for my life. There is nowhere to turn because everywhere there are traps set for him. Enemies lurk around watching and waiting for him. There's nowhere to go to find help. You get a little sense of how David's feeling at this point. Humanly speaking, there's no other place to go. He's overwhelmed. Problems are relentless. He feels alone. There's no way to turn. Go back to verses 3 and 4. 
When I am afraid, I put my trust in You. In God, whose Word I praise, in God I trust, I shall not be afraid. David says, when I feel afraid, and the reality is he is feeling afraid. Can I ask you a question this morning? Can you be a believer in Jesus Christ? Can you have faith in God and still be afraid? The answer is yeah. I dare say most of us have been there. David is one who has faith in God. He's faithfully followed God. And yet he says, when I am afraid, I am afraid now, and it will probably at some point in time in the future happen again. He's writing a song now all about it. But notice he says, verse 4, I will not be afraid. I am afraid, but I will not be afraid. We wonder, that's interesting. That sounds like a contradiction. How do you go from being afraid to not being afraid? And the answer is right in the middle. When I'm afraid, I put my trust in You. You and I may not be always able to control our emotions when we encounter circumstances. We're going to encounter some circumstances and we will just automatically become afraid. We'll become fearful. We'll get depressed. We'll whatever. We'll have an emotional response. We may not be always be able to control what we feel, but we can choose to live above our emotions. We can choose to act according to something different something higher than how we feel. To act in faith to trust God rather than to live simply by our emotions. That's what David is saying right here. When I am afraid, I'm going to trust God and I'm not going to be afraid. You say, that's easy to say because you haven't been in my shoes. And I think David is writing this psalm exactly so you and I can go, wow, I've never been in his shoes. And David is writing it for himself for some time later when he's coming to a time where he's going to be afraid. He can remember what he went through before and how God moved him from fear to faith and confidence. It's easy to say, but how do you do that? David has made this wonderful, confident declaration, in God I trust, I shall not be afraid, but how do you get there? And I think that really is what we find in the rest of the psalm. We discover what is in David's mind and in his heart that moves him from depression and despair to confidence. Notice again verse 4, it says, in God whose word I praise, in God I trust, I shall not be afraid. What can flesh do to me? He says, I trust in God. Notice this. Why do I trust in God? Look at what comes right before. In God whose word I praise. David isn't just talking about 
I hold up the Word of God and I raise my hands and I start singing a praise song. I love the Word of God. I love the Word of God. I love the Word of God. That's not what he means when he says, I praise the Word of God. Not that praise songs or holding hands is bad. I'm just saying. What he means is, I value the Word of God. I honor the Word of God. I cherish the Word of God. I exalt it. I praise it. Not because it's a holy book. I praise it because this is the words of the living God. God has spoken. And in the Word of God, through the Word of God, we can know God. We can get to know Him. We learn of His character. We learn of His nature. We learn who He is. In the Word of God, as God speaks, God has given promises. And we can learn the promises of God. Which are, as David David says in the Psalms, it says, they are sure, they are certain, they are faithful, they are true. See, central to David's confidence is the fact that God has spoken and David says, I honor, I value, I cherish God's Word. All the other reasons that David gives for why he has confidence and why he trusts God all stem out of the Word of God for it's things that David has learned about who God is that he has learned from God's Word. And it's based on promises that God has made that come through God's Word. It's such a big point that David is making here that it actually is the chorus of the song and it shows up not only here in verses 3 and 4, but it shows up again down in verse 10 and 11. Look at it. In God whose word I praise, in the Lord whose word I praise, in God I trust, I shall not be afraid. What can man do to me? As he repeats the chorus the second time, I notice he adds another phrase. He says, in God in whose word I praise, that he said the first time, now he says, in the Lord whose word I praise. He uses in the first time the word God, the name Elohim. Speaking speaking of the God who is the Creator God, the Sovereign God, the the Mighty God. But now he says this time in the Lord, capital L-O-R-D. And I know all you who have been studying your Bibles, you, you know that that means, we know that that's the word, the Hebrew word, Yahweh, or the the name, the personal name that God used to reveal Himself to His people, the Israelites. It is the name by which God established covenants with the Israelites. It's the name by which God gave promises to the Israelites. It's the personal name of God. And David is saying, I trust in God, the Almighty, the Creator, the Sovereign One. I trust in God, the personal God, who has relationship with me and I have relationship with Him who has personally revealed Himself in His Word, through His Word. This is personal. And so ultimately, David is saying the best thing that you and I can do to prepare ourselves for difficult times is for us to treasure God's Word. To recognize that the personal Almighty Creator God has communicated through His Word. And when we come here, we can learn Him. We can get to know Him. We can find there what we need to face tough times. 
His Word, when we learn it, when we treasure it, will be our anchor in troubled times. David wrote a whole psalm, the longest psalm, the longest chapter in all the Bible. Psalm 119. It's 176 verses all about the Word of God. I won't read the whole thing. Let me just tell you a couple of things you can find in there. David says in verse 97 that the Word of God makes us wiser than our enemies. David, who's in the hands of his enemies right now, needs wisdom. It says it gives us... in. A couple of verses later, verse, the next verse, verse 98 says it gives us more understanding than our teachers. Verse 101, Psalm 119, it keeps us, His Word will keep us from sin. Verse 105, His Word will be the light to our path. Verse 112, it will be the joy to, to our heart. See, David understood the value of God's Word. And that was the basis of his trust in God. Best thing we can do to prepare ourselves for tough times is learn the Word of God, treasure the Word of God. Best thing we can do when we are in tough times is go back to the Word of God. Out of that comes more things very quickly. Let me move on. Verse 4, David says, In God whose Word I praise, in God I trust, I shall not be afraid. What can flesh do to me? David has just said that he trusts the omnipotent God, the powerful God, the Creator God. And so because I trust Him, what can man do to me? Now our natural answer to that, of course, is what man can do to me is an awful lot. Putting us in the hands of a bunch of ruthless soldiers, what can they do to me? Well, they can beat me. They can pull out my hair. They can stick stuff under my fingernails. They can, ah! they can do all kinds of stuff. They can kill me. They can do a lot of stuff to me. But David says, what can man do to me? He's not saying that they can't do anything. What's he saying? That they can't do anything except what the Almighty Sovereign God allows. What David is recognizing is that God is in control and if God allows anything to happen to me, it's because He has a greater purpose in it. That is the message all the way through Scripture. Daniel chapter 3, you know the story of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. I don't have time to go into it, but you know the story. They wouldn't bow before the king, before the statue that the king ordered them to do. And so the king ordered them thrown into the fiery furnace. And he said, what God can deliver you from my hands? And they said, well, our God can. But even if He doesn't, we won't disobey Him to obey you. We, won't, we will honor God. And you know the story. God allowed them to be thrown in the fiery furnace. What kind of good, faithful, all-powerful God lets them be thrown in the fiery furnace? Well, the one who's going to get glory by delivering them from the fiery furnace. God won't always prevent trouble from coming into our life. Matter of fact, the Scripture says He deliberately often allows it to come into our lives because it always has a purpose. That's the promise of Scripture. If God is for us, who can be against us? Paul echoes this, Romans 8. We don't fear man. We don't fear trouble because we are confident that God, that God's power will ensure that nothing will happen to us but what has a purpose. That's what gave Martin Luther the confidence to reply when he heard that both the emperor and the pope 
had contracts on his life and he said, I care for neither of them. I know whom I have trusted. We can rest in the power of God. David says, I trust God's Word. I trust God's power. Verse 7, For their crime will they escape in wrath. Cast down the peoples, O God. God, David recognizes that he is innocent in this. He's being hunted down by evil men. And David, though rather than being angry, David, rather than seeking retaliation or revenge, David simply places the matter back in God's hand and says, God, this is your problem. David trusts God's justice. Very often our troubles and our problems will be the result of someone else's sin. How we need to follow David's example and Simply put that matter in the Lord's hands. As God Himself said, Vengeance is mine, says the Lord. I will repay. Do not seek revenge. Verse 8, David goes on. He says, You've kept count of my tossings. Put my tears in your bottle. Are they not in your book? It's a rich, wonderful verse. One you might even want to memorize. One to help you get through tough times. When you're, especially when you're tempted to wonder, does God really even know what's going on in my life? You think you've been abandoned? You think you've been forgotten? You wonder, has God just forgotten me? Or does God just not care? And here David says, Oh, you know, you know my tossings. <laughs> All night long when you can't sleep because you're just turning on the bed, God knows it. Wherever it is you've gone, you've had to go fleeing, here, God knows where David is. He says, you put my tears in your bottle. Are they not in your book? God has kept a record of every single sorrow, every hurt, every loss, every tear. Isn't that awesome? He hasn't missed any of it. Not only that, it seems to indicate that He's treasured them. He's held on to them for a purpose. I love the way John Bunyan, the, the man that wrote Pilgrim's Progress, he said this, God preserves our tears in a bottle so that He can wipe them away. Looking to Revelation where it says, right there at the end, he says, He will wipe away every tear from their eye. John, John Bunyan is saying, man, he's, he's going back. It's retroactive. <laughs> every tear you ever had. I love that. Verse 9, he goes on, Then my enemies will turn back in the day when I call. David trusts not only God's Word, he trusts not only God's power, God's justice, God's care, he also trusts God's deliverance. At the right time, God will deliver us from our problem or through our problem, but He will deliver us. He's confident in that. Also in verse 9, he goes on, This I know that God is for me. David trusts God's loyalty. He says, God is on my side. The Scripture says that. God is on your side. If you're a believer in Jesus Christ, you are His child. He is your Father. God is for you. Then verses 10 and 11 comes that chorus. We've already said it. comes that chorus again. Says because of all these things, because of the Word of God which tells us all these things, I will trust Him. I will not be afraid. 
verse 12. David is still in the midst of his mess because this whole psalm is written while he is captive by the Philistines. And yet in verse 12, David is so moved by all this stuff that we've just seen. David says, I must perform my vows to you, O God. I will render thank offerings to you. He's already thinking ahead to the fact he's going to be delivered from this. And how am I going to thank God? How am I going to worship Him? He's planning the worship service already. See, already we see that when we take our eyes off the situation and we focus our eyes instead on God, we remind ourselves of who God is and what He has promised as David has done right here. It enables us to move from fear and despair into confidence And David is so confident that he's already thinking about how am I going to worship God when this is all done? But there's one last thing. Verse 13. For you have delivered my soul from death. Yes, my feet from falling. Again, he's already anticipating his deliverance. But listen to this. You delivered me, what's the last phrase, that I may walk before God in the light of life. David says, there's a purpose to this. And your purpose is you're going to rescue me so that I can walk with you in the light of life, so that I will walk closer, more closely with you. I will walk more intimately with you. I will walk more faithfully with you. I will walk stronger with you. I will be... You see, God's working through the problem. God's purpose is bigger than whatever situation you're facing. It's very easy for, I don't know about you, but it's very easy for me to get focused on my problem, get focused on my situation, and then throw a pity party and miss the point that God has a purpose and a plan in the problem. David realizes this and it causes him all the more to be confident and say, I trust Him. I trust God's purpose in this. The Bible is clear that God uses our problems to draw us to Him. God uses our problems to cause so that we might turn to Him in faith or when we're wayward to turn to Him in repentance. He uses our problems to deepen our faith, to grow our roots deeper. He uses our faith, the Scripture says, to bring other people to Him. He uses our faith, the Scripture tells us, to bring glory to Himself for the reasons, at least, that Scripture gives for why or how God uses our problems. And it's why James writes in James 1, count it joy when you encounter various trials, my brothers. It's why the apostles in Acts 5 rejoiced that they suffered for Christ. There's more we could say, but Let me just end with this. Nothing in this psalm nor anything in my message this morning is intended here to beat up on you this morning. If you're hurting, if you're oppressed, if you're going through tough times and struggling, to add one more thing here to your list of problems that where you're sitting here going, I've got all these problems and instead of faith, I'm a failure. I'm a spiritual loser. I'm supposed to be like David going, you know, I'm afraid, but 
that I went under the fray. I'm just depressed. I'm downcast. I'm hurting. That's where you are this morning. The purpose of this psalm isn't to beat up on you. It's simply to say, there is another path. There is another way. David is saying it is possible to live above our circumstances. Begins with desperate prayer. God, help me. It continues by beginning to move our eyes away from us and our circumstances and beginning to refocus by looking into God's Word. Learning more about who God is and focusing upon Him. Learning more of the promises of God and clinging to those. Little by little, God will change our focus even in the midst of our circumstances. And He will one day bring us out of that. And He is at work in it. Romans 8.28 says, And we know that God causes all things to work together for the good for those who love Him and are called according to His purpose. Let's pray. Father, some folks here this morning They're not in the midst of difficult times. Actually, right now, things are going great. (laughs) Work is good. Home is good. Health is good. Life is good. Father, we rejoice with those who rejoice for whom things are going well. Lord, I ask that You would help them in the times when things are going good, that they would keep their focus on Your Word. Keep their focus on You that they would honor You with their wealth, that they would honor You with their health, that they would honor You with all the good that they have, that they would enjoy the good gifts which You have given to them, for every good gift comes from You, that You would enable them to be a blessing and encouragement to others who are hurting. We ask for those who are in the midst of deep and dark things right now and difficulty, Lord, that You would come alongside of them, that they would turn to You even as as David does here and call out to You. That, Lord, You would respond. That You would help them to remember who You are. To remember what they have seen and heard in Your Word as You have shown Yourself. That they would be able to trust You. Lord, that You would help them to see that You are faithful that You are walking with them, that You are for them, that You are working a purpose. Lord, that in the end, both through our sufferings and through our blessings, that You would be honored and glorified. Both through our sufferings and our blessings, that we would be drawn nearer to You. Both through our sufferings and our blessings, that we would be a witness to those around us who do not know Jesus that they would see that there is a great God whom we serve. They might find forgiveness and life in Jesus. This we pray in His name.